turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. In your pew Bibles, that should be around page 617. And back uh, close to the time of Advent, I preached a sermon from Isaiah 35. And in that sermon, I referenced several other passages in Isaiah. And what I'm intending to do here is expound or unpack some of those references that I made in that Isaiah 35 sermon. And so the first of those was actually from Isaiah 59. And uh, so this is going to be looking at Isaiah 58, 59, and 60 in three sermons, um, trying to understand the context of, of that passage. Right. So, uh, so you can consider this selections from Isaiah. And the first uh, that we're going to be doing this morning is from Isaiah 58. So if you have your scripture, I'll read for us. You can follow along. This is God's word. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? You will call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring water 
whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise, raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called a repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Some of you may have heard a story that was in the news recently, several weeks ago, about a Catholic priest who had practiced baptism incorrectly for years. And the implication is that there were thousands of baptisms that were considered to be invalid. It was a big deal for them because they see baptisms as imparting grace. And so in light of this, we need to make two brief points. First, words do matter. Right? What we say implies our intent, and it points to what we think about the actions that we take. And in the case of the priest, he said, we baptize you, instead of I baptize you. So in the view of the Catholic Church, it's Christ who is the one doing the baptizing. And so it has to be an I, and not just any I. The priest is standing in the place of Christ when performing the baptism. But this raises a second point. The form, in this case baptism, should not replace the substance. Ceremony, over time, can become more complicated and detailed, have more weight added to it. And sometimes you need a professional then to say all the right words. And once that happens, ceremony can take on a significance all its own. And it can have a new meaning given to it. Any of us could fall into this. We say that faith is operative in baptism. That's the key element. Not the person officiating, not the performance of the ceremony. If you lose the true substance of faith in Christ, then what do you have left? The form should always point to the substance. So a ceremony should Help us to see the truth of what's happening. We see this all the time in weddings and in graduations and in other ceremonies. The ceremony is meant to reflect a truth in the life of that person. And that happened in the Reformation too when the reformers pulled back the frequency that they practiced communion. The people saw communion as having more weight and applied to it, and that had entered into the theology of that day. And in order to help them break this habit of seeing more in the communion than was there, they reduced the frequency of it to help reset expectations. So by practicing communion less frequency, the reformers pointed back to the substance, which was our union with Christ. Well, let me give you a different example. 
in the Harry Potter books, uh, they had to use the right words. What would happen if they accidentally used the wrong words? They may do something that they didn't intend to do. And even more than that, they used an object to try to amplify and channel those words. Or it could matter which person said it, because they'd have more impact if they were the ones that said it. And so you have the, the ritual and the object and the agent, and that's all tied up in the performance of this act. And we see that even in, in religion, in history. You know, if you have a shaman who maybe has some connection with the spirit world, and folks would go to the shaman and say, this person can help me. This is a special person who can help. Right? Or even in more advanced religions, somebody will pay a priest for a professionally delivered prayer on their behalf. And Israel was not immune to this. In Judges 17, Micah says, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Micah wanted the right person to be his priest, to whom the Lord would listen to him with the intent of prospering himself. So the the whole objective in in this story from Judges was to to benefit Micah. He would have a priest represent him for his own benefit. So in all these cases, it's the performance of the act with the special agency of a person that brings about a desired end. We do so that we can have. The ceremony... The act becomes a cosmic theater in order to gain favor with deity to get what you want. It's like telling God, this time I really mean it. But that's not how God works. So what brought you here today? We're creatures of habit, and at times we can rely on the form, and we ignore the substance. So what brought you here? Was it a habit? There could be good reasons, a need, finding joy in the Lord, a desire to do better, to get your life together. What the Lord wants from us is a genuine devotion to him. A substance to our faith. And if we practice the form of religion and do not know the substance, then we will be on the receiving end of Isaiah 58. So specifically in Isaiah 58, we're going to see that the Lord detests a false devotion The Lord desires a genuine devotion. And the Lord calls Israel to a renewed covenantal relationship. And you'll find these themes of a genuine covenantal relationship and the salvation that comes from our God throughout Isaiah. 
You'll see it in the opening chapters. You saw it back in Isaiah 35, and you'll see it in this section. And even in the broader section that starts even back in chapter 56. So in, in future sermons, we're going to look at this section in more detail, right? The, in, we're going to look at sin and repentance and redemption from the Lord and how the Lord will be present with his people. And the theme of a substantive relationship continues as we go on in the following chapters. And we need to look at Isaiah 59, which has this direct fulfillment of, of that restored relationship. And Isaiah 60, which points to this future restoration that is to come. And so having established all that, let's look back at the meat of Isaiah 58. The Lord detests a false devotion. Back in verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Isaiah is told to cry aloud and not hold back. So this declaration was up front. It was not hidden. It wasn't quiet. He was to bring before the people their sin and make it front and center. He was to voice it before them in a way that was clear. He proclaimed that this is urgent. It's important. It's not a small thing. Something is wrong in their life and it needs to be brought to their attention because the people are in sin. They act like they are devoted to the Lord, but their devotion is false. And that makes their actions even more grievous. Verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. So in in verse 2, there's this this added emphasis in the text placed upon the word me. Saying they seek me? Right? One, One of the commentators puts it this way, and yet they seek me of all things? They seek God as if they had done what was right. As if they had followed. And there's a stark contrast here between they seek and they delight. Right? The, the, the Lord is not their pursuit. It says that they're seeking, but the Lord is not ultimately what they are seeking. True repentance is walked out in action, and these folks were walking someplace else. And so the practice of a form of fasting was not matched by a substance of genuine devotion to the Lord. In Old Testament Israel, and also in the example of the Pharisees, we see these examples of following the cultural expectations of the law while not doing what is right in the eyes of God. It's so easy for us to say, just tell us what to do. If you give people the rules, they may follow while breaking them at every step. So they were using these signs of devotion like magical incantations to cover over their true intent. 
And it's possible to seek the Lord even daily, but have a false devotion. And this was a major theme in Jesus' teaching. Right? Don't miss the greater point of the law. God's people are called to seek him and to follow him, to walk with him. They're called to holiness, but their devotion here is false. As if they were a nation that sought righteousness. In verse 3, why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Why, Lord? We fasted and you don't see it. Why can't you see? But the Lord says, you fast to seek your own business. They're fasting for their own purposes. Fasting is just a means to get what they want from the Lord. It becomes this external marker. They're people who fast. But it's a marker for them to show that they follow while their hearts are far from him. And so outward false devotion is using God as a means to an end. The Lord does not respond to false devotion. Don't just follow the form without the substance. They fasted while seeking their own pleasure and oppressing their workers. They just kept on being terrible while keeping this outward form of being a fine, upstanding citizen. Are the rules for you, are they constraints or are they guides? Do they constrain your sin or are they a guide towards the center of God's will and heart? Scripture points to a new kind of person who follows the Lord from the heart. Don't just try to stay within the boundaries. Seek the center of God's will for your life. Right. Verse 4. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. They oppress their neighbors. They oppress their workers. They, they quarrel and they fight. Their fasting is without righteousness to back it up. They come back expressing repentance, but their repentance is false. They have no inclination to move on in a different way than they have been acting. So their remorse is for the consequences of their actions. The consequences that have come to them and so true remorse would be if they see the wrong that they had done and intended to begin to walk with the Lord. But because they seek anger and harm, verse 4 says, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. You can add that to your list of scary verses from the Bible. Verse 5, 
Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Their mistreatment of others was such that it overcame whatever righteous acts they had done. They had focused on this external ceremonial adherence rather than actual humility. And so they could spread sackcloth and ashes while being terrible to those around them. You see how these markers of devotion had become just cultural markers for them. It's just what you do. That is false devotion. An action traditionally associated with humility does not make it humility. So let me ask you this. right? Were the people being impressed, oppressed, inherently righteous just because they were being oppressed? No. There, there may be some value in helping them to be humble, but that doesn't make them righteous necessarily. Well then, were the ones who were doing the oppression right and being harsh towards them? Of course not. Right? That's, they were acting outside of the heart of God in their harshness. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So in our day, people focus on defending truth, which is admirable. But sometimes we will despise others in the midst of that. So listen, others may be wrong on matters of truth, but when we objectify them so that that's all that we think about them, then we despise them, then we're going to be no better than these people in Isaiah 58. And he gets there as we move forward through the chapter. That's what Jesus called out. And the Pharisees, too. Oppression, quarreling, fighting, hitting with a wicked fist, keeping up appearances while acting like this way, that is a danger to your soul. It will kill you spiritually. Humility matters. Your character matters. I'm not arguing for syncretism. But what I am saying is that your character matters before God. And the Lord expects genuine humility from his people. And our outward devotion better reflect an inward reality. So translation, don't act ungodly towards others. How you treat people matters. And some may say this is just a matter of you know, preference or, or perspective or tone. No, this is about your heart. Examine your heart. So, what the Lord wants is a true devotion from the heart. A simple conformity to the law misses the point. The law may be a restraint, and that may have some practical value in restraining sin in the lives of the community, in our own lives. But that's not who we are called to be. People 
look at the edges of the rules to see where the boundary is and how close they can get to the edge but stay within the boundary. Don't ask how far you can go before crossing the boundary. If you have to ask, then your heart's already crossed it. People follow the outward markers of being a Christian, yet fit that into their own agenda. And they justify ungodly behavior. Instead, we should go straight to the heart of where God wants us to be. Look toward the center, towards Christ's likeness. So the Lord desires a genuine devotion. Here in this next section, God lays out a, a vision for what genuine devotion looks like. Right? It's a direct contrast to the false devotion detailed in the previous section. And there is this if-then structure to the verses. Verses 6 and 7 are an if, and verses 8 and 9 are a then. And then you get that if-then structure again in verses 9 and 10. So I'm going to read 6 through 12 for us here. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall rise up, raise up, the foundations of many generations. Look at the verbs in this section, especially this first few uh, verses. Loosen, untie, free, break. Uh, all of these are in relation to bondage. They point to freedom. The bonds were wickedness and the oppression of the poor. And in contrast, a genuine fast is to share bread, housing, and clothing, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Right, that line points out that these are people just like you. And when you do release these bonds, that's considered a true fast. You could summarize 6 and 7 with the removal of oppression and share your bread. And then in verse 8 and 9, it points to the blessing that comes from a genuine devotion before the Lord. There is light, healing, righteousness, and the glory of the Lord. So when the people have a genuine devotion before the Lord, he hears them. Notice the contrast with the earlier verses. He, the Lord will not hear. But with a genuine devotion, he does hear. 
He is present when they humble themselves and turn to him. And so we see another if-then start in verse 9. If you take the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. So notice these three things this time. Don't oppress, don't hold others in contempt, and don't speak iniquity. So if you pour yourself out, verse 10, then the Lord will guide and strengthen, verses 11 and 12. This section more tightly connects the physical oppression to the way we see others. So this is not just about physical oppression. Slander and mocking come from a heart that view others with disdain. And we may disagree with them, we may be in, they may be in sin, but if we objectify them in that way, then we will think less of them as people created in God's image. Then we will hold them in contempt, and they will see them in our mind as deserving bondage. You can look through history. When people are put under bondage, this is what happens, right? You objectify them as a people and make them less of a people. It's not a far jump from pointing the finger and speaking wickedness to the yoke of oppression. And these verses connect them. Brett pointed me to a paper this week showing all the points of contact between this chapter and the Day of Jubilee. And there are many. The Day of Jubilee was a promise of freedom to those who have been brought under bondage. In the context of Isaiah 58, here's the point. If you want freedom from oppression from an external oppressor, then don't be the oppressor of your own people. That's what they had gotten wrong. They oppressed their own people, and then they cried under the weight of an external oppressor. And Jesus takes this even further in the Gospels. In the opening chapters of John's Gospel, he interacts with a Samaritan and with an official in the Roman government. And then in Matthew and Luke, he interacts with a centurion. And he goes to the Decapolis, the ten Greek cities, and interacts with them. And these folks all came from groups that would have had differences, background, political disagreements with the Jewish people. Even those in bondage to sin are still people made in the image of God, and Christ went to them. James interweaves some of these ideas in his epistle. In James 1, 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Your heart, your tongue, and ultimately your actions are connected. And Jesus emphasized our heart motivations and the words that proceed from those heart motivations. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's a connection between our hearts, our words, and our hands and feet. Now, Isaiah chapter 1 is a parallel in some ways. You'll find many parallels to this section. Um, but verses 10 through 20 have a parallel. And it's, uh, it comes across even more threatening than Isaiah 58. But there is this section at the end, verses 18 through 20, where there's a promise of redemption. Right? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So even from the opening chapters of Isaiah, there's this laying out of an agenda for the book, right? Of, of redemption of God's people in the light of their own disobedience. And uh, this is also laid out in future chapters after Isaiah 58. So to set the stage, the Lord seeks genuine repentance from the heart here in Isaiah 58. Let's think about what repentance is. Repentance is willing to think about what was done wrong. It doesn't cover over or ignore sin. Repentance involves a change of mind. It doesn't secretly hold to a false self-justifying narrative while outwardly putting on a show. Instead, someone who is repentant thinks differently about their actions and intends to live differently in light of that changed mind. So repentance is to be walked out in our lives. We are to seek genuine repentance. You know, Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. It starts with a broken and contrite heart. And, and then in verses 11 and 12, we see some blessings. Now, these are the sorts of verses that people love to go look at. I like to jump straight there. He's going to make you strong. You're going to rebuild the ancient ruins. Yeah, that sounds great. Right? Let's put that on a t-shirt. Right? They could restore what was broken and make right what was wrong. Who wouldn't want that? Right? But we can't skip to the end. We have to go through verses 1 through 9 to get there. Restoring the streets to dwell is an image of the flourishing that comes from a renewed, genuine devotion before the Lord. And that genuine devotion is at the heart of a covenantal relationship with God our Creator. It's not just about the form, it's about the substance. Let's read the last couple of verses here, starting in verse 13. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So let's address something up front in Isaiah 58. Call the Sabbath a delight. It was a call to the people of Israel to recommit to the old covenant. So we need to ask, what's the implication for us? So first we see just a little bit of history or review here. We see the Sabbath at creation. Right? God rests 
at the end of creation. And we see the Sabbath at the establishment of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, in Exodus 20. But in the New Testament, we see a Christ-centered application of the Sabbath. Christ has fulfilled that work. So the Sabbath obligation is fulfilled in Christ. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. So Israel looked forward to God's grace. We, we know that Israel has not finally entered into his rest. We look forward to that final rest in Christ. And when he comes again to bring new creation, that's what we're looking forward to. That's our final Sabbath rest. And Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about this. Hebrews 4.11 specifically says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that, that future day that is coming. Let us strive to enter that rest. Finding our rest in Christ leads us to trust in him and to live for him. And so Paul also addresses this in Romans 14. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So there's wisdom in seeking a day of rest. There's kind of a creation precedent for that. But there's wisdom there. And we should give the Lord the first fruits of our devotion and attention. But Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And our ultimate Sabbath rest is found in him. And so that's why worship on the Lord's Day, Sunday, is the pattern in the Christian church. It's not the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday. And you see this pattern uh, even going back to the early church. Right? And you, uh, you have passages where Paul talks about, you know, don't take the whole law upon yourself. Right? But this passage is about more than just Sabbath keeping. It's a restatement of the earlier section. So there's a literary aspect here. The the first part of chapter 58, he's talking about fasting. The end, he talks about the Sabbath. These are both markers of the Old Covenant. A false devotion leads to death, but a true devotion marked by repentance leads to life. And the Sabbath observance is a marker of that participation in the Mosaic Covenant. And so God is restating the offer of covenantal relationship with his people. But that covenant has some stipulations. They were to seek the Lord and keep his commandments. And there were conditions that pointed back to the people, though. And a covenant would have the list of those bound to the covenant, the stipulations of the covenant, the list of blessings and curses associated with the covenant and breaking the covenant. And notice the blessing here in Isaiah 58. 13 and 14. And even blessings back in 9 through 11. The the blessing is from renewing the covenant before the Lord. And so God, in his law, had given them not just the rules, but the blessings associated with being faithful to the covenant and the curses associated with being unfaithful. There are many verses that speak to this. But here's one example. Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you the rain for the land in its season 
in the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your field for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So the point here is not just Sabbath observance, but observing the whole covenant. Fasting and Sabbath were markers associated with that covenant. They were diagnosing the problem for the people. The people were willing to hold to the form without the substance and call it good. And that's not being faithful to the covenant. And God calls them out on it. Devotion to the Lord is not some incantation. It's not some words that you say at the right time. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. So sometimes people act like the performance is what gains them righteousness. That's not much different than treating your faith like a magic incantation. If you say a prayer the right way, if you participate in the right worship, if you can take communion, then you'll be all right. That is a false devotion. Keeping the form of religion will not save you in that day. Covenantal relationships have markers that point us to the substance. That's why they're there. Wearing a wedding ring is a marker, but the substance is seen in a faithful marriage. A covenantal relationship with the Lord is seen in our character, in changed hearts, in humility. Let those markers reflect the truth. So what does the Lord require of you? Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Micah 6.8, he has told you, a man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So fasting and Sabbath are markers of a covenantal relationship. They should reflect a true reality. Humility and submission to the Lord. We must seek a true devotion before our God. So the call seen throughout Scripture is towards that. It's an emphasis in Isaiah 58 on humility and submission before God seeking their repentance. Their oppression of their neighbors showed that they were missing the point. But from Isaiah 58, we need to see the acts of devotion should mirror our trust in the Lord. The outward devotion is meant to reflect the humility, submission, and repentance of our hearts. If you live with a false outward veneer, 
Think of how destructive that is to your soul. Think of what it teaches your family. Think of what it teaches your kids. Don't teach your kids to be Pharisees. When acts of devotion are used to gain favor, they're being used for evil. It's a grand lie. Even repentance can be used like an elaborate theater to gain leverage. People are really creative at using these things. Don't look at what I do. Look at how I follow the rule. And do you think the Lord will be pleased with that? No, God is interested in changed hearts that result in changed lives. Your character matters, not as a conformance to the rule of law, but as the law of Christ that comes from a changed heart. So projecting outward submission when your heart is far from him, feigning repentance when what you really want is your own way, a superficial veneer covering over your cruel intentions, don't be a part of that lie. A changed heart is a gift from God. If you're hearing this and you know that your heart has not been changed, if you know that you are putting on an act, then pray to the God who created you. Ask that you would be given a new heart. Humble yourself before him and submit your life to him. And let your worship before the Lord reflect a genuine devotion to him.